You're listening to CinePunk, the interactive discussions for film lovers. So, um, you're very welcome here to CinePunk at the uh, Belfast Film Festival. And uh, basically, we, we do these things fairly regularly. We, we do sort of these live interactive discussions. Usually we have them based around a film, but today we're going to take a, a slightly more serious note than usual. Um, so, my name is uh, Robert J. E. Simpson, uh, and this is my... CinePunk colleague, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And we're very pleased today to be joined by Liz Nelson, who is, and let me get this right, a feminist, a writer, and an activist, and also part of the Belfast Feminist Network. So, um, big hand for Liz for joining us today, please. Hi. So, it just occurs to me what I should do. Have I still got a program here somewhere? I'm just going to requote what it is that we said that we're going to cover today, just so we are all very, very clear on this. This is what we've advertised. Uh, Viewing certain films has become more problematic than ever before. Claims of sexual abuse and impropriety dominate the headlines leading to the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns. Once beloved personalities are now box office poison. From Arbuckle to Spacey, Alan to Polanski, scandal clouds the filmmaking industry. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and navigate the ethics of film watching in a post-Weinstein area. Can we separate art from artists? How is the cinema gaze being redirected? And is it okay to watch a film when the makers have been convicted of criminal activity? Where does the line sit between suffering for craft and abuse? Okay, so yeah. I just want, wanted to get me sure we were absolutely clear what it is we're actually talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns have kind of... I think they've taken the world by surprise, but possibly not in the UK as much. Um, Well, I see, I think for us it sort of started with Operation Newtree in the UK. So before that, we had already got, after the Gary Glitter scandal, um, I think we kind of got used to it, particularly with the music. So we had Glitter and we had Savile, and I I think kind of that struck everybody. Um, And then after Savile, we've had a number of our sort of older childhood heroes have been you know taken apart you know i think rolf Rolf harris is the one that everyone always says to me i can't believe rolf harris and then it's sort of that would be my one as well yeah i can't believe rolf harris but equally um do you know it's it's it it is kind of yeah you know that's not something i'd really i had considered because to me the whole operation yew tree um it feels different from me too i mean i know um it's it's Broadly, we're talking broadly the same kind of um, subject matter, the same kind of uh, culture, the same kind of um, uh, sort of uh, conspiracy of silence um, around protecting names at the expense of whatever it is um, that you know that has been done to to vulnerable people in an industry that that sort of is focused on the cult of personality. Um, to me, it's it's me too is. It's part of that conversation, but it's it's a bigger conversation, um, and I think really you know where that intersects with what's going on in Hollywood at the moment um, is slightly different. It is, but possibly because uh, Utree in particular has been a criminal investigation. Exactly, it's very yeah. sustained criminal investigation into alleged behaviour by certain individuals. Cliff Richards back in the news again today about you know the investigation into him that was subsequently dropped. Um, so this stuff is very, very relevant for us. The Me Too and Time's Up campaigns um, have been built more, it seems to me, around allegations. Uh, and this point where um, I, I'm a single man, okay, I, I occasionally date. And I've had women say to me now, you know, are men actually too scared to do anything because of these campaigns? Um, I mean, that's actually how far wrestling is, because when you make an allegation about someone with the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns, there's this sort of sensation, this sort of feeling, I think, 
that perhaps they don't always have to be supported then with a criminal investigation. And even when a criminal investigation is carried out, as we've seen in the headlines in the last few weeks in Northern Ireland, um, that doesn't always go the way that one expects it to go. Well, you see, no, that's that's problematic even. Um, so, I mean, do you know, I... Uh... Well, I have a lot of sympathy and I have a lot of male friends and I have a husband who are saying the same thing. Do you know, how do we know where the line is? Well, yes, I have a lot of sympathy for that position, but I think it's also slightly disingenuous because if you can't tell the difference between flirting and sexual harassment, do you know, there's it, it kind of throws it back and sort of says, well, you know, you're overreacting to things. I, no, no, there's it's not an overreaction to, to classify something as sexual harassment when it is clear clearly harassment and it's sort of trying to push back and say um you're 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 overreacting to this um and kind of, that's that i find very damaging and very disingenuous well this is this is the first thing i want to kind of hit on so we're kind of going around this in a slightly roundabout way but mm. when we're talking about that um that sense of that borderline between sexual harassment uh, and sort of well, we're talking really about issues of consent mm. um but sexual harassment and flirting um i think and i'm going to on this in a second um for, for me, I think that this is a huge responsibility at, at Hollywood, actually, in the, in the films that we've been brought up, where actually we're taught to, you know, we, we base our lives in many respects on what we see in the movies. And the behavior that we see, particularly amongst the way that men get on with women in the movies, is not the way that one is really supposed to conduct, not the way that one should conduct a relationship. I don't feel, Liz. You're right. Um no, I, I would agree with Rachel that I, I, I don't think that that, um, that response of saying that uh, now we don't know where the line is is acceptable for me. Um, and I completely agree with Rachel that if you don't know the difference between flirting and sexual assault, please don't be talking to me um, <laughs> because I think you do know. Um, now, I, I, I would agree that there absolutely needs to be much better um, sexual education and, and consent education in schools and, and all over the place. Um, but I don't want to see the lack of that used as an excuse for unacceptable behavior. Um, and I just want to pick up on that last point that you made as well about how the, the movies have really influenced influence our ideas of what consent means and what romance means. Um, and I think it's it's almost like this odd sort of circle in a sense the one influences the other so you have these um filmmakers i think who put their ideas of what consent is um of how they think uh, men should interact with women and how women ought to respond to those advances into their films which then goes on to teach an entire generation um myself included what i should be looking for in terms of a romantic partner what kind of behavior i should be willing to accept from someone, um, and and it takes a long time to un unlearn that yeah. as well. Um, even as you know, as a woman, you look at that and you go, "Oh well, sure, that's just like the what's that classic one with the the John Cusack and the boombox outside oh, the window." Say anything. Yeah. yeah so okay. Anything. That's yeah. stalking. That's stalking. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's it's and that's like a really massive example, but it's things like that. Like that's not romantic. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, you can. We, okay. we, we that's have that's not fucking romantic, right? <laughs> that's stalking. So we get caught up in this like feedback loop. I think. Yeah, it's like that guy. Where is it? Bristol recently. Recently, in the past year or so, I've, my my sense of time has kind of collapsed. The older I get, but um, who who's, who puts the piano in the public place and says, "I'm yes. going to carry on playing this until you take me back," uh, spurned ex lover of mine, and expected the entire world to go, "Oh, isn't he lovely?" And he did get a bit of, "Oh, isn't he lovely?" And, but there was a massive pushback on Twitter that he wasn't expecting. He was like, dude, that's stalking. She said no. You know, um, I have this right every single Christmas whenever somebody heals Love Actually as being a great film. That, yeah. You know, it, to me, that is just a film that perpetuates the, 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 the stalking behaviour of let's, men. Let's 
count all of the stalking behaviours in Love Actually, shall we? I mean, really, it's, it's, it's just the whole film. I mean, and, and what's worse? <laughs> that's like, let's count all the sexual assault <laughs> in Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, like, that's, good that's God. No, I need to go home at some point today. What really pains me about Love Actually is actually you've got Liam Neeson teaching his young child how to be a pervert. Uh, and inappropriate and how to you know basically if you're doggedly persistent Liam Neeson is recently widowed in that film and uh, the, what? how long does the film take about a couple of weeks that's set over and by the end of it he's he's sort of oh there's a Claudia Schiffer lookalike played by Claudia Schiffer I think I'll fall in love with her after the love of my life has just died well, a well of no weeks to be ago. fair we, we can't hold any kind of anyone responsible for the way that they deal with their own personal grief but that, he that has is a, separate a really issue. crap American accent though so I'm going to hold him accountable for that personally no not film he's just British in that accent uh, I know, but just like in general. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I find that film deeply problematic, but that is one that is that is constantly healed. And Richard Curtis's writing, actually, generally speaking, um, always sits for me somewhere on that, that that slightly uneasy pain. Um, and see Neil Sedgwick's in the audience here. I'm sure Neil, you've heard me talking about this before many, many times. We have this rant every year. Um, this is, this is problem. So we, we do we do teach ourselves in the films that this is the way to get on, and and so yeah, we were having this conversation just before we started actually about um, the the sorts of films that you know we were certainly fed in the nineteen eighties, and I, it hasn't changed. You know what's what's changed is I think how overt it is, but the sort of the John Hughes era films, a lot of that is about extremely dubious consent. Um, and yeah, I had a conversation with my husband before I, I left. So just wanted to get his perspective on it because he's generally very astute on things like this. Um, and he said, you know, it's not talked about. Where do we learn? Where do we learn how to interact with the opposite sex? Where do men learn and women learn how to interact with the opposite sex? Because if your parents are talking to you about it, well, they are passing down a generational idea of how this works. Uh, which is not necessarily relevant on the current day. If you're doing, if you're talking about it with your friends, they're getting all of their information from the same kind of cultural circulation. So if you're being told um, by by media and by friends, that's being reinforced by various different um, areas that how you interact with women is you just keep badgering them until they say yes um, and women really want that because women don't actually really like sex or interaction with men so you kind of have to persuade them and there's so many really dangerous um, uh, ideas circulating in that that are kind of feeding and then they're feeding in and being reinforced these films are popular for a reason they're, they're popular because they are interacting with with some with the popular cultural consciousness in a way that rings true to people and that's being fed back into the kind of films that are being made that's why I find Hollywood cinema so fascinating um, and, and so necessary of being studied and understood, uh, particularly from a gender perspective, because what information that circulates and what information feeds back tells you a lot about what's going on in a culture at any given moment. To bring this, um, do we want to talk about Molly Ringwald and her article, seeing as we were talking about John Hughes? Um, you guys were talking about this beforehand. Yeah, so if anybody missed it, um, Molly Ringwald just recently wrote an essay in The New Yorker, um, which is really great. And it um, was basically her reflecting upon the movies that she starred in in the 80s, um, the, the trio of John Hughes films, um, Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, and The Breakfast Club. Yes, Got so it. They were yes. slightly before my time, I'll admit. So I was kind of like, what? Um, but it was really, really interesting to hear her reflections on it. Um, and she actually, she was watching, I forget which one, but she watched one of them with her 10-year-old daughter um, and wrote about how uncomfortable that made her and the kind of conversations that she had to have with her daughter, especially, I think, it, I want to say it was the Breakfast Club one, but my apologies for getting these all mixed up. I'm not, um, the, I'm not the film buff of the panel. Um, but there was a scene in which um, another student kind of 
um, is, is shown to be peeking at her underwear under the desk. Um, and she talks about the filmmaking process behind that and how it wasn't actually her as an actress sitting there that they hired um, a woman and, you know, someone who was not a minor to, to do that. But the fact that her parents were really uncomfortable with that, um, her parents were uncomfortable with some of the lines um, around like her pants going missing, her underpants. Um, and I, I think that's, it's a really useful reflection because it allows us to kind of go back and look at things that are held up, you know, not only in the popular consciousness, but for a lot of us as well growing up as our favorites. Um, and, you know, what do we do when our, when our favorites are problematic? Like, my favorite movie of all time is The Princess Bride. And, like... That is so fucked up. Please, I mean, he, please, please don't make me have to look critically at the Princess I know, Bride. Right? <laughs> but I was thinking about this while I was, you know, mentally preparing for um, for this um, because I, I was I was getting ready to show that I have critiqued my own favorite, just ready for someone to go, well, blah 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 blah. So yes, I know. Okay, um, I know that it's horrible. He is manipulative and abusive. I mean, he actually hits her at one point, I believe. Oh, um, God, he does. He yeah. does, yeah, yes. Yeah. And the thing is, once you realize these things, it is difficult to go back and watch these movies without that, you know, without taking that lens off. But I think it's, I think it's sort of a balancing act, right? Because I don't think it means that we can't enjoy films like that. I certainly am not going to never watch The Princess Bride again because I'm, I love it. But I'm also not going to make excuses for it. And I'm not going to try to say that it is this incredible love story that gives us a valuable lesson about how we should conduct our relationships because it's not. It's fun to watch, but it's also supremely fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. We were sort of touching on this recently when we were talking about Blade Runner and that scene in Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner is my all-time favourite film. Princess Bride is a close second, but Blade Runner is the film that made me want to study film. It is just my absolute, oh my God, wow moment um, in my kind of film sort of maturation process. Um, that sequence, the, the, the love scene in Blade Runner, is intensely problematic. Um, but there seems to be, in Blade Runner fandom, a ring fencing around that, where uh, saying that scene is intensely problematic just re results in an absolute stream of defensive kind of uh, pushback from, and I'm sorry, I hate to generalise, mostly men. There, I've seen, I've absolutely seen women justifying this on the same grounds, but but absolutely denying the character of Rachel's bodily autonomy and her right to 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 leave the apartment. Oh no, she's um, she's having a crisis. Oh, spoiler alert for Blade Runner, by the way. She's having a crisis because she's just found out she's a replicant and she doesn't know if she can trust her emotions. And what Deckard's really trying to do is force her to confront the fact that no, she really does experience. Yeah, okay, that's all well and good. What he's doing is he's refusing to allow an upset woman who has said no to him kissing her to leave the apartment. And he is basically making her have sex with him because he wants sex. And I've, it's, I mean, for a film that I absolutely love, I have to switch my, my gender theorist head off when I watch that because it's really, really uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that we can't love the film. There's so much to love in that film, but we can't. But it's even the way that that, that seems that we talked about this. We, we screened Blade Runner last week. Uh, I mean, one of the problems with that is it's not even just that, that, that scene, which is basically a rape sequence. It's the way that it's actually coded with the romantic music the romantic that's playing music. the whole way through it. So not only have you got this rape sequence, you've actually got one that's being set up as a kind of sexy love scene. Yeah. Um, and when the director has made that choice, and ultimately it comes down to Ridley Scott making that choice, yeah. 
um, you then have to then relook at the director and, and how that then how you then view their work, which brings us into the next bit of this conversation. Because I'll yes. move this on. Now, because you guys have all been sitting so quietly and lovely so far, um, we're all film fans, most of us. Okay, now don't be afraid. You don't have to stick your hand up if you don't want to. But I'm just curious to see um, in certain directors' names because you know it, we we tend to talk about certain directors and how whether or not we're fans of their work. Uh, anyone here a Hitchcock fan? Anybody like Hitchcock's films? It's okay. I'm gonna stick my hand up. I love Hitchcock. Okay. Anyone a fan of Woody Allen? Could be honest, me too. Um, Ridley Scott. Okay. Um, Polanski. Okay. This is interesting. Polanski. We're going to have to talk about him. We're going to have to talk about Polanski, because, really. <laughs> uh, well, because out of everybody, uh, out of all the people that have been named over the years uh, of, of various sexual and propriety crimes, Polanski is the one that was convicted and then buggered off. I mean, Does that mean we can say what we want about him? <laughs> we don't have to say alleged, I okay. think. Okay. Well, no, because, no, I mean, every, everyone here is aware of what Polanski actually was convicted of, Yes. Not the full details. Okay, I'm not going to go through the full details on this because it's 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 it, it's quite graphic actually. Um, but basically, he took a 13 year old girl back to um, the house he was staying in. He drugged her. He raped her. He sexually assaulted her, um, and then covered it up. Uh, Angelica Houston comes around to the house at one point. It's, it's, it's Jack Nicholson's house. Jack that he's Nicholson's staying house. In. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great Hollywood kind of scandal. I don't think he was staying here. Staying there. I think he just brought, it, brought her there just, to take pictures. Yeah. Brought, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. She was going to be a model. Yeah, he had her pose nude. topless. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it but it, but it is. And it's gone on for years and years and years, and there has been various points at the point. Now, now she has at various points said that she doesn't want to have any prosecution done over it, that she's happy enough. Well, the, the fact that the prosecution happened, or didn't, well, he, 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 he took a plea bargain. He took a plea bargain, yeah. and then that he was... was stepped down from rape to, um, to, to basically having sex with a minor. She was 13. She could not legally consent, regardless of it. He's always insisted that it was, um, it was at her, yeah. her, as much at her behest as his. Legally, she can't consent anyway, so that point is moot. But basically, um, he was scared of going to prison. He then left the country and went off to was it France or Poland or Switzerland? Uh, France. Or He's a French citizen, French-Polish citizen, and France has a policy where it doesn't have to extradite to America. So there's various points. That's why Polanski basically makes all his films now. In, in that France has very much protected him ever since, of course. Yes, um, I want to kind of get into that as well because I had a... a yeah, there's been a lot of stuff in the French media recently about Polanski, and they're basically saying that he's he's ours, he's a saint. A, a friend of mine in Paris, who was, uh, was feeding me like the the headlines and stuff in the French papers, and the, the, you know the the French are very very behind him and feel that he shouldn't go back. Now, obviously, he is a very problematic director. Um, I I've got to admit, I struggle to watch anything that he's done after that trial. Um, I think I've seen one or two of the films, but the rest of them, I just can't bring myself to do it because once I became aware of what had happened, for me, his work became tainted. Now. Weirdly, I'm okay watching the stuff before that point, which seems possibly slightly hypocritical. Um, I mean, let, let's talk about Polanski first, and then let's talk more generally about the idea that you know somebody's work might actually taint you. And we've got a little bit of audio to play as well in a few months. Um, well, I've, to my knowledge, never watched a Polanski film, and I have no intention of doing so, I suppose, because for me, anything that he says or has ever done is completely tainted, and I... I from my perspective, it would make absolutely no difference whether he made it before he raped a 13-year-old girl or after he raped a 13-year-old girl because he's still a person who raped a 13-year-old girl and I want absolutely nothing to do with anything 
that comes out of his head or his mouth personally. Um, so I, I guess I would obviously be very much of the view that um, actions behind the scenes for me really impact um, whether I can consume that art. And I think that part of that, it's there's a couple of reasons. It's about one, denying any further power or accolades to people who misuse it, in this case, mostly men who misuse it, because no matter what he thinks that 13-year-old girl wanted, he had the power in that situation. He was a film director. He was older than her. There's absolutely no way that legally or otherwise that girl could consent to what happened to her. So I completely disregard that. Um, it also, for me, means that a person who would do something like that, those, um, those ideas, those messages are going to sink in to the film. So I don't want to watch the film because I don't want to give him any more power. Um, I don't want to watch the film because you bet that those kind of creepiness is going to sink in to that and it's going to become a part of the message that com that's coming across through that film. And I don't have any reason to seek out more misogyny in the media that I consume. I already get it from everywhere. You, you, you were talking about this there on yeah. but one of the films in particular. Has anybody in the room seen Death and the Maiden? Okay. Death and the Maiden is a Polanski film. Now, I saw it years ago um, before I was really that aware of, sort of in the back of my head, I wasn't really aware it was a Polanski film. I was only vaguely aware of what um, uh, what his, his, his backstory was. Looking at it now, <laughs> um, it's intensely problematic. The content of Death and the Maiden, um, I think it's, it's based on um, a play, I believe, but it involves, and Sigourney Weaver is, and it's a fantastically well um, uh, sort of put, uh, acted and, 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 and very well written piece of work. Um, it's, she's set in an unnamed um, South American country which has experienced a very brutal revolution recently. Um, she has been sort of kidnapped and held and repeatedly raped by a man who played Death and the Maiden by a composer whose name I can't remember. Who is it? Schubert, thank you very much. Okay, um, played Death and the Maiden while he brutally, systematically raped her. Um, uh, ben Kingsley's character rocks up at their door one night when she's recovering, everything's settled down, and she immediately identifies him from his voice. She was always blindfolded. She identifies him as the man who raped her. Um, and the film kind of descends into a very kind of how, how would one describe it? It's it's very kind of interior because it's 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 sort of a theatrical origin. But but the um, question all the way through is, is Paulina crazy? Is she nuts? Is she just desperately lashing out at random man who happens to have knocked on the door because she's been raped and it has interfered with her mental health? And she's very much portrayed as a, an unreliable witness all the way through. Now the film takes the view that in actual fact she might have a case to answer, but it continues to ask the question, is he admitting to this because he is afraid for his life? And she is threatening his life all the way through. Now, as a as a, a piece of fiction, um, I, you know, it, it, it goes to some really dark places. It, it asks some really dark questions. The fact that Polanski made that is almost like two fingers of sort of, I see your rape allegation and my guilty plea, and I don't give a shit. So, I mean, there, there, there's a kind of bigger, broader question. Is like, do the, there is a school of thought that suggests that um, actually there's a complete distance between someone's personal biography and the work that they get involved with. Um, and, and so, therefore, we shouldn't actually be reading necessarily anything into that at all, and actually Polanski's biography has no relevance onto that film. 
this is this, I've had an argument about this with a few people over the over the years. I mean, this is definitely a, a viewpoint. There is another school of thought, and certainly when I was studying film at university, um, the whole idea that someone's biography actually influences the work that they do definitely was pushed. And um, when you think about, you know, no one thinks twice whenever you talk about an artist drawing from some aspect of their life and how we read into their work. And the more we know about them, the same are writers. And I mean, we've had this conversation over some of the projects that we've worked together on, where I suddenly realised that actually some of the choices that I have made and the pieces that I'm doing are directly influenced by things that have happened to me. So I certainly, I sit on the side that, you know, someone's biography does actually influence the choices and how we read their work. Well, whether or not, I mean, we're, we're talking basically auteurism versus, yeah. versus, you know, my my opinion, which is kind of slightly anti-auteurism, but not completely. Uh, whether or not you subscribe to auteurism and, and whether or not you think that's a valid way of looking at it, I mean, the, the, the choice to be involved with a piece as problematic as, as some of the decisions that, that are problematic names that we're, we're thinking about tonight have chosen to be involved with, um, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not wanting to name any names of directors who haven't been found guilty of wrongdoing because I'm trying to be very careful, but I'm talking about making films in which your character is in love with a 17-year-old who loves them back and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Um, that's a decision that one makes to 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 deal with that material. Okay, we'll talk about Woody Allen in a second. Can um, we? Am I allowed to? I can't I can't work out if I'm allowed to. You, you're allowed to. I mean, say allegedly after every other word. Allegedly. <laughs> well, we, we will go into it because it is quite complicated. Um, we're going to try and play a little bit of an audio clip. So... Um, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Anna Biller. Uh, we have her appearing on our podcast um, in a couple of weeks' time. So Anna is... Uh, anyone know Anna Biller's work? Some of you? Yes. Bonnie at the back. Um, so The Love Witch and... Uh, no, not Diva. Viva. Diva's um, the other. Um, so Anna's, I, I think we're, we're kind of in agreement that Anna's a feminist filmmaker. She's definitely an auteur, um, which is quite interesting. If you haven't seen her films yet, I highly recommend The Love Witch. Um, but I was chatting to her at the end of our interview about this very issue, and um, we're talking about the idea that actually um, d- does what you know about someone's biography actually influence them. And she starts off the conversation here by talking about Polanski. So if you just want to play that for us, hopefully this will work. Does, um, does knowledge about how people have conducted themselves in the past change how I view their work? Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, well, what I'd have to say is that usually, um, usually if, if people are, are pro- if men are problematic, it shows in their work. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't been fans of most of the people that have come out and been condemned because there's a lot of misogyny and sexism in the work anyway. Mm. I would say the the the, the, um, the exception to that is Roman Polanski, whose work I find really great. Um, you know, I don't I don't find the work to be problematic in its content or execution at all. Mm-hmm. So so I struggle with that a little bit. But no, I don't. Um, but but so that's the only case where I would I maybe have to struggle. Um, and I, I guess it, here's my real answer, and, and I know this is, sounds really cynical and terrible, mm-hmm. um, but I, I would say um, that the number of men who are dastardly to women is so high in terms of the percentage, and especially men in power. Mm-hmm. It, it, a lot of times it's a question not of, of who's terrible, but who's been caught at being terrible. So I've lived my whole life knowing a lot of 
men who have been really bad to women um, and being hurt by a lot of them or some of them. And um, I, haven't, I, I'm not a, I haven't been in a position really to wholesale reject all of those men. Um, what you do is hope that the men learn. And I feel like especially men who are maybe like sexually active in the 70s or so, See, that's kind of what my, my movie Viva is about. Mm. It's about how what was being promoted at the time in, in, the, in the culture was so toxic to women that most men felt like they had the freedom to behave that way towards women. Not only the freedom, but almost um, they were almost shamed if they didn't behave that way towards women, like they weren't a real man. So groping women, um, forcing yourself on women, picking up on young girls, that stuff was so in style. And it was so practiced by everyone, unless it was like someone who's considered like a, a family man, let's say, or someone who's like a, a very strict Christian or something. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was behaving that way. Um, <laughs> if you look back in movies, even mainstream movies at the time, you see how men treated women in movies, and it was considered completely fine. Yeah. So it's it's it's. I, so I think it's. Um, Men really just didn't have, haven't really had the awareness of how, of women as people, I think, for, for, for a lot of, um, you know, since the sexual revolution. I think men's awareness of women as people has not been very high up until recently when, it's, when, when they've, had, they've had to be aware of that. So this is one reason I, I love classic movies is because they were before that time of that really extreme toxic misogyny and sexism that came into movies. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I guess that's what I mean when I say I don't like most of the movies that men make um, in the past few decades but because they're made with that mindset. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so I don't know if it's so helpful to necessarily single out the few men who have been caught. <laughs> it's more like it's more it's more like changing the culture is, is what's important i think i i, I think that uh cynical that may have been i think is also very accurate and uh, i think it's a really good observation to make and and you know i, I couldn't not um i couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask you particularly bearing in mind I, I, what i feel is coming from your work and how i'm responding to it and i think how other people are responding to it so, so thank you for for, for doing that um, <laughs> yeah. and, and hopefully you know hopefully your you you know your films are are going to help influence people to sort of change that attitude as well um because i think they should yeah if i can if i can get see this is the interesting thing too though is that um you would think that things are changing where people would be clamoring to work with me as a female you know produce my film by next film as a mm. female director working in hollywood that's not necessarily going to be the case. I'm realizing because because I'm I'm seeing scripts that are uh, extremely sexist. I get sent scripts that are amazingly sexist that nobody finds a problem with, and then um, I think some people have a problem with my script, thinking my script is sexist. So there's this weird like 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 people have been so indoctrinated by the masculinist culture that they, they possibly see, like, a woman in peril picture as, like, retrogressive or bad for women just because she's not, like, a kung fu artist. You see what I mean? It's sort of like the, the environment is so screwy and it's yeah. so upside down. 
I, I, I think that... So, like, it's, so it's, a, it's a situation where somebody like um, Quentin Tarantino is called a feminist filmmaker and I'm not. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like that kind of environment that we're in, which is so crazy. There we go. Um, I thought it was really important that we had a perspective of a, a filmmaker as well into this and somebody who's worked in the industry. If you haven't checked out Annabelle's stuff, um, her, her Twitter account is full of, of really great kind of links and particularly if you're at all interested in sort of feminist outlook, she's had some great articles um, that she's written as well. Um, but it does, I mean, she's she's picking up on the same points that you know you guys are hitting on as well. Um, now, I, I, I did say well, we can we can come back to some of this stuff in a bit, but I want to kind of get on to to sort of Alan. Now, I mean, Woody Allen has been dogged for the last twenty odd years by the allegations that have been made about him, and without getting into mass amounts of that, that in itself is nothing unusual. I mean, we've we've had cinema has always had people that that have had scandal associated with them. Um, I was thinking primarily uh, two people in particular: um, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle who uh, in 1921 was accused of, of rape and manslaughter. Um, and the whole scandal that built around that, now he, he was tried three times, eventually he was acquitted, um, but basically his work at that point then became taboo and he was banned for a year. Uh, but even after that, he struggled to kind of get back into filmmaking, so he kind of died with his, his work in, in, in jeopardy. Now, he was legally acquitted. There's still various kind of... Uh, Schools of thought as to, to how culpable he actually was, um, but certainly it ruined his career. Now, one of the people then that championed him at the time and said he would never do a thing like that was Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin is a director that I absolutely adore, but is incredibly problematic, mostly because of what I know about his personal life. And this is a man who spent most of his life having uh, affairs and marriages to women that were considerably younger than him. Um, there was a case uh, in 1945 where he's... Uh, it's, it's a paternity case against him. Um, after having had an affair with a 20-year-old, there'd been two terminations in the pregnancies already. There was a third child that was born. Um, there was apparently a blood test that was proven that Chaplin wasn't the father, but it wasn't admissible, so he ended up paying paternity for several years. Um, later on, he marries uh, Una O'Neill, who was 18 at the time. That's his last wife, and that was apparently a very happy relationship, lots and lots of children. But when you know that, that Chaplin is somebody who spends most of his time um, basically grooming I think it's fair to say these young actresses for stardom. We say, well, I love that expression. We've often heard that before, grooming for stardom. It's like, actually, you're not just grooming them for stardom. You're actually just grooming them. And it's only in the 21st century that we're actually able to sort of just skip that little bit out and just say what it is. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think most people have a... I, I think it's probably fair to say that most people don't think about this stuff when they look at Chaplin's work. Arbuckle's work is now actually coming back into to a little bit of acceptance. People are starting to... to become familiar with it, mostly because of his work with Buster Keaton. But Woody Allen at the moment um, is the kind of the modern day example. Now, for legal reasons, Woody Allen has not yet been found guilty of any charge. Um, there have been a couple of investigations into him from which he was cleared. Um, Got to make that quite clear. Um, there have also been a series of articles in the newspapers of the last couple of years in the American magazines um, written by his various offspring, both allegedly biological and adopted and we have to say allegedly biological these days because Mio Farrow has confirmed that it's only alleged. Um, thoughts on this? Now, you're not a Woody Allen fan anyway. Fan anyway. Is this because you know about him? or? Um, I, I think I more or less grew up with all of the scandal around Woody Allen. So he's always been a filmmaker who has had that kind of problematic narrative attached to him for me. I was familiar with that narrative before I was ever familiar with his work um, and I can only assume that that has coloured the way that I approach his work. However, I think his work certainly merits that 
kind of uh, perspective being brought to it. Um, because Well, let's be honest, he spends a lot of time in films with a much older man and a much younger girl. He, he does. Um, and the way he, he plays it, uh, there's a lot of navel-gazing around the relationships, but it has never been my impression that the the kind of interrogation that's going on about the relationship is is this is this kind of a bit weird not that's wrong because there is there is a lot of interrogation around the relationships in the film but i think yes the the, the answer that the film seems to come up with is okay it's a bit weird but it's actually fine go me um is that would that be anybody else's perception i accidentally watched was it midnight in paris once mm-hmm. and 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 it's when i say accidentally i it's i mean because i didn't know it was a woody allen movie and had i known it was a woody allen movie i would not have watched it but you did watch it and did you enjoy it um yeah a bit so it's possible that I might like other things that he's done, but I have no intention of testing that hypothesis. Um, if, if you must do Manhattan Murder Mystery, I love it's older Woody Allen. He plays all the characters. It's it's actually quite good. But I, I suppose that <laughs> that may be true. But I suppose that you know it goes back to things that I, I said previously. Is I I have no intention of of by watching it adding to any sort of cultural power that he may have as a filmmaker. Mm. I also think. Um, I think we, I mean, some of the things that Anna was saying, I think are really relevant to this. And I, I want to kind of pick up on as well. Um, especially that sentence where she said, where people are just starting to think of women as human beings was just like, God, it hurts like hell to hear somebody say that, but it's absolutely true. Um, and I think that we, we have to remember that women are human beings when we watch these things and we try to defend problematic parts because, it's so often our ability to defend problematic work comes from an aspect of, of, of privilege of not being affected directly by it. And when she says, you know, when she talks about things that were going on um, in the 70s and like, oh, nobody really thought it was a big deal. Well, I can guarantee you that the women affected by it thought it was a big deal. It never didn't affect someone negatively. It's just that that narrative hasn't come in to things i find i actually find that quite interesting i've i i know a lot of actresses and and sort of people who worked in the industry in 70s and 60s it's a conversation i keep trying to have with them because we're judging it from our 21st century uh woke perspective and these are the people that actually lived that and i by no means want to excuse what went on before i'm spending a lot of time watching spike mulligan stuff at the moment this week and um I'm finding stuff that I laughed at 20 years ago is now I'm sitting there going, this is actually isn't funny. I've, I've grown up, but back in, in the day, a lot of the conversations that I have had, um, would suggest that actually people were much more accepting of it. They didn't look at it. And actually a lot of the women seemed to feel that they were more in control than we would think that they were. I think accepting is the wrong word. When there's no alternative, you survive it. Um, And I do remember seeing um, a documentary, gosh, it must be 20, 25 years ago, um, about um, basically workplace sexual harassment and sexual assault in the sort of 1930s, 40s, 50s. Um, and, And it was... It was endemic. Um, from what these women are describing, it was endemic. But there was no recourse 
There was no uh, legal recourse for them. There was no kind of employment recourse for them. So they kind of took matters into their own hands. And one story that will forever stay with me, um, I'll share it with you. Do, you. do you want me to share it with you? It might be uncomfortable listening for some of the gentlemen in the room. Um, oh, there was, spread. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was, uh, I remember hearing a story about a factory floor there was one guy on that floor that was absolutely well known in sort of whisper networks and the women knew that he was not somebody to be caught alone with and they were spreading and one woman did get seriously sexually assaulted by them so the women of the factory floor decided they'd had enough um, and they all ganged up on him and they basically pinned him down pulled his pants down and threaded bolts onto his member um, and and the members swole up around that and um, I don't recall what happened to it in the end but you're pretty damn sure he never touched them again um, and it's not that it it's not that that, that that women I think well I don't want to speak for a generation that I don't belong to but I, I, I my perspective is that it's not that women find it acceptable it's that there was no other way to 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 get through it but to kind of find ways of surviving it and find ways of fighting back and reclaiming that power in tiny little increments where they could sorry no i was just going to say on that as uh, the molly ringwald essay that i mentioned before she actually goes back and um, reaches out to a couple of the actresses who had small parts within her films one that she felt on reflection, watching them again, were perhaps a bit exploitative, um, and asked them how they felt while they were filming it. And there's one, now forgive me because I can't remember exactly which film it was. You should go read the essay because she's obviously a lot more eloquent than I am about it. Um, but there was a part where um, the actress was, her whole scene was doing something that really was quite exploitative, and, and apparently um, at the time she felt fine about it, and and, and said so to, to Molly Ringwald when she was speaking to her. And then emailed her again months later and said, I went back and watched it again and, and I'm thinking about it more and more. And actually, it, I, it was uncomfortable. Mm. It, it, it wasn't the experience mm. that I wanted. Um, and I, I think that says a, you know, a, yeah. a lot of what, of what you were saying is that it's not necessarily that it's accepted. I think also as women, we internalize a lot of the misogyny and we make excuses for behavior yes. that we that we know or that we don't realize is wrong. What I mentioned earlier is we, um, when, when we are consuming the same media, the same um, films that tell us what romance is supposed to be, what relationships are supposed to be, we have to unlearn that as well. The men have to unlearn how to not be a dick. But like we have to unlearn you know, that, that we don't have to accept that as yeah. well. I, I, mean, I think some of what is being hit on with, with that, that, that essay and that kind of reaching out and the kind of the the post instant things is really is, is trauma and how you deal with it and actually the fact that sometimes it can take a while to accept that actually whatever you've experienced whether it's a, a physical or psychological or sexual abuse of any kind um it does have an after effect and it does take a while and so what isn't voiced at the time doesn't mean that you're not going through it or experiencing something or living it or or having to process it much later on i don't want to get too far into that um at the moment, but but before I kind of open this up to you guys, because you've been all waiting very very patiently, um, in terms of, of of sort of so when you when, you, when you, at the moment we've got a lot of allegations that are being passed around about people, um, so from the likes of, of of everything that Harvey Weinstein has ever touched, um, Quentin Tarantino um, has is, is sort of some of his behaviour has been called into question. Um, I think he also been in the news this week. Um, 
Jeffrey Rush. Je- Jeffrey Rush, yeah. who's, who's now basically housebound in Australia. Um, some of you may be aware about Stephen Fingledon, who was a Belfast Film Festival um, director who was here a few years ago. Uh, his film, The Survivor, he's been up in court in Dublin in the last couple of months. I think it was Dublin, Dublin or London. He was in court in February. Um, I had a look this morning to see what had happened with that trial. It's still in limbo and he hasn't tweeted a thing since just before he went to court. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of directors out there and a lot of filmmakers, a lot of actors. Kevin Spacey, who we haven't even touched on. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. I mean, there's, there's, actually, there's a temptation as well to view this very much. And we had this conversation the other day about this as being a, a, a woman issue in, in the sense that it's certainly... But actually it's not. Kevin Spacey is a really good example of it. It, it. it still seems to be predominantly almost entirely men that are the predators in these situations, um, but their victims cover every age and sex and, and, and race and everything else. Um, so when we've got the allegations that have been passed around and we don't actually yet know there's not been a trial, they've not been investigated, does that mean that we're not going to watch their films? I think that's where Anna Biller's uh, comment really... I mean, that clarified a lot for me the first time I, I, I heard that um, in the sense that... For a lot of these people against whom allegations are coming out, it doesn't necessarily feel like a shock or a surprise. Um, There are a few of them where I'm still very much kind of, oh, God, not you, please, not you. But for the majority of them, um, you're looking at it and you're going, actually, that doesn't overly surprise me. So when she's saying that it's work that I would have found problematic to begin with, very often... That holds true, that it's not necessarily work that I would particularly want to engage with necessarily. Or if I do, I have to take a step back from it and I have to view it as, OK, it's it's very much a product of its culture and um, the, the way it deals with with particular with women, you know, that, that very aggressive attitude Hollywood very often has towards women. It's it's part of this wider culture. So it it's not necessarily difficult for me very often to go, okay, I'm now going to give that a wide berth. And it's not the same thing as, I I don't feel like it's the same thing as convicting in the court of public opinion, um, because at the end of the day, these people have a platform because we give them a platform um, and uh, choosing not to engage with work is absolutely valid, regardless of what the the creator has or has not said, done or whatever. You know, I, I may or may not choose to engage with work for any reason at all so to that particular reason that's fine maybe I will be forced to re-engage with it in the future if it turns out that it was spurious allegations um but but it it is my right as a consumer to to engage or or not engage for whatever reason okay um I I suspect that we already have your answer Liz but do you want to step in as well yeah um for me, obviously, um, as you may have gathered, I I have no particular interest in watching work where there are um, credible allegations. I would, um, without being um, uh, problematic in saying this, my instinct is always to believe women when they allege that they have been mistreated in any way. I think I can say that without being sued, hopefully. Oh, good. Um, uh, I think that... in so. For me, a good example of this is Johnny Depp and the allegations against him um, in terms of intimate partner violence um, by his then wife and the fact that he has been cast as Grindelwald in the um, continuing Harry Potter series. That breaks my heart, really, really breaks my heart because I 
I love those films. I, I grew up, you know, I was that generation that started Harry Potter, you know, I'm freaking 30 something now, but I remember the first time I read that. I remember the first time I went to see those films. I love them. I don't know what I'm going to do about the next film coming out that he's in. I genuinely don't know the answers to that because I don't want to be in a position where I'm giving him my money or my cultural capital at all, but I want to see that movie. So I find that very, very difficult. Um, and I think it's partly linked to something that like that Anna touched on and she's saying that you know, you'd think that people would be flooding me with offers to make films and they're not. Every time we allow, we keep giving support and money to largely men, but not always, but largely men, um, male filmmakers who are making these problematic things, who have these allegations against them, we are taking oxygen and resources away from women filmmakers um, who have something to say, who could be giving us incredible work, um, who could be giving us their energy, and we are not, there is no space for them. And sometimes I get quite frustrated, actually, in the conversation of, should we watch this movie? Should I, you know, still watch Pirates of the Caribbean? Or should I, you know, da 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 Because... Every person that has that is there that has these allegations against them that is problematic is taking a space away from a woman who was denied that, who had to work against all of those things in her career and wasn't able to reach those places, possibly because of something that happened to her, possibly just because she didn't want to deal with that. And that's kind of what I keep reminding myself whenever I get upset about that is there is so much other work out there and I, I would rather give oxygen to that. Am I going to go see, you know, the, the Fantastic Beasts and where to find the next one? I might not go to the cinema, but when it comes free on Sky, probably. I'll just shout at Donnie Depp a lot, which I do now. You know, it's, it, it's a difficult one. It, it really is. When your favorites become problematic, it is very, very difficult to separate the art that you love from a horrible thing that a person has done. But I think that it is incumbent on us if we want to build a, a more just and equal society. I know that sounds cliche, but genuinely, like... It is, it is incumbent on us not to give these people and their work oxygen. There's always the chance that somebody will take the revisionist approach that some of the uh, some of the Star Wars fans did with the last Star Wars film and do a complete re-edit and just cut Johnny Depp out of it and superimpose <laughs> somebody else in. He's I mean, kind of the star, though. It's going to be really hard. They cut half of The, the, the Force Awakens. <laughs> I mean, whatever the last one was. Um, I, last Jedi. Um, thank you, Rachel. Um... <laughs> So I mean, I think for me, I, I mean, I, I, certainly for me, I find it problematic. I've already said, like, I, I generally don't watch Polanski's films after 1974. Macbeth is fantastic. I love it. Um, and Chinatown has been screening as part of this festival as well. I had a conversation last night about it and whether or not that was something you want to screen and whether or not you don't want to have a discussion around that. I think people do um, need to express their own, uh, their own, their own right to watch whatever they want to do, ultimately. And actually... As a film historian, part of your battle is actually to address this stuff. We can't brush it under the carpet. I mean, I, I find bringing it back down to, to U Tree, I mean, it's very problematic when we have a lot of revisionist histories of the 1970s that now suggest that people like Gary Glitter and Jimmy Savile never existed on the television. Um, whereas when you watch stuff, you know, they're always, they were always there up until about 10 years ago. Um, I don't want us to get to a stage where we are doing that. We have screened films by Orson Welles and, and Alfred Hitchcock before, both of whom are very problematic directors in terms of some of the allegations that were made at the time, in terms of some of the content, and certainly some of the revelations that have been made in the last few years. And I think w w we did a, a podcast earlier on the year about um, The Room, yeah. which was, was at Rachel's behest. Um, but it was. It, come on, uh, The Room, come on. He, yeah. he, he won't speak to me because of it. <laughs> 
It's not, it's not me you were with, it's Ben, who just won't talk at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ben, I got the glares. I keep getting the glares. Um, I mean, but that was a problematic film. And then we, we talked about the disaster arts, which then suddenly became doubly problematic. But this doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation about that and actually address it. And I think, for me, this was the, the male member of the panel. I mean, actually, it's, it's important that we, we do touch these things and we do actually point out as, as men, as women, as, as people that we kind of say that actually this is this isn't what I want to see and you need to change this in order for me to kind of find a film that actually is something I want to keep on watching. Now we have talked for loads and loads and um, I did promise you guys you'd have a, a chance to kind of get involved as well. So has anyone got any comments, feedbacks, thoughts, observations, burning desires um, or yes. So I'm going to pass the mic around. Um, make sure you talk into it because we are recording this as well. And I didn't say this at the start but when you talk into this you're giving us the consent to use this for our podcast. Is that okay? Yes, super. So yes, I have a question I'd like to address to, uh, is it Liz Nelson? You have stated the very reasonable and very understandable response that um, certain, I love the word problematic, that's a, that's a very good blanket term, so certain problematic individuals who have been found guilty of very problematic behaviour, um, well for you then it sort of causes a, a no-go response. And uh, so I've got a kind of a triptych of... Uh, I thought you were going to say trick for a question. No, like, no, it feels a, like it's going to be a trick question. No, 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 no. I've got a triptych of uh, dicks if three people were considered hypothetically guilty. Let's just say that. Uh, and one, one was a producer, one was a director, and one was an actor. So yeah, Rachel made the point about um, not wanting to watch. A director has creative input, so whatever the subject matter of their, their, their work of art, I mean, it can be anyone. It could be an author, it could be a painter, it could be... But if they're found um, guilty or rumoured to have engaged in some kind of very immoral and illegal behaviour, it's certainly going to filter into their work. With an actor, not to disparage actors, but you know, if they're walking, talking, um, mouthpieces... Um, I, 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 I would interject there. I would completely disagree with that because I mean, actors themselves often, when we think about stars, mm -hmm. um, the idea of a star, there's an entire personality that we then kind of project onto those stars, and that's part of the reason why they pick the films that they do, why they get chosen for films, and why they get cast. So I don't think you can actually look at actors without looking at their personal lives as well. That's my personal view. Um, okay, so, so yeah, the, the, I guess the direct point there is, is uh, to put it into a single question. If I was the head of the BBFC and I wanted to introduce a degrees of patriarchal problematic behavior you know would you categorize oh well in this film it was it was only the actor who turned out to be the uh, the sexual deviant and not the director therefore it's only a class three you know sorry, i don't mean to be flippant just how would how do you respond to different degrees of of um importance in the filmmaking process um, I would say that, um, in, particularly in the cases of the three individuals um, that you're speaking of, each of those are men with um, many years and immense power within Hollywood, within their own artistic processes. And as Robert said, I think even um, I think actors do choose what work they want to associate themselves with. I think this is something that we can absolutely discuss when we're talking about Woody Allen and the people who have defended him. I'm very sorry for that. Um, because those, and, and many times they are actresses who continue to work with him um, despite allegations. So I don't think actors get a pass at all. Um, you know, reference my despair over Johnny Depp and Harry Potter, heartbroken. Um, I think that 
at the same time, someone like Weinstein obviously has quite a lot of power over what films get made and who gets cast in those. And um, reading in particular Selma Hayek's account of her experiences with Weinstein and making um, Frida, I think that's where we really start to understand the insidiousness of him within um, the alleged insidiousness of him within um, filmmaking circles within Hollywood and um, the alleged coercion that he um, propagated um, over who was in his films and what they had to do in order to get their films made. If you haven't read that um, opinion article by Selma Hayek, I highly encourage you to do so. So in terms of ranking it, I don't... I'm not going to say that one is worse than the other, I don't think, because for me, um, certainly as a feminist, as someone whose um, go-to is to, is to believe and support women who have um, said that they've been assaulted or, or impacted negatively, I don't think you can put a sliding scale on someone's suffering, and I'm not going to do that. I understand what you're saying, what you're asking. But I don't think I would be less likely to watch something because Weinstein made it versus Johnny Depp was in it. Aside from the fact that if Johnny Depp was in it, at least I could shout at the screen, <laughs> which is maybe not as cathartic if Weinstein never appears on screen. But but there are yes, there's 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 differences in in power to a certain extent in terms of what can get made. But they're all for me problematic because they're people who are wielding their artistic and filmmaking power in bad ways. Can I just pick up on a, a, a just one or two? Th I mean, for me, it, I, it's that's what you're saying. It's about power, um, and it's about yeah. The, the the producer, the director, the, the star, they all have input into what gets made. Um, it shouldn't be about stopping people from making art. Everybody has the right to make art, no matter who you are in the world. What you don't have the right to is millions and millions and millions of pounds and an international platform for people to engage with that art um, and while I definitely think we should be very wary of suggesting censorship here and I think when you're talking about the, the, the classification system I don't think the state should be involved in this at all What at any iota of that, that's, that's censorship that is um, pre preventing who gets to, to sort of say anything at all, no it should be if we are going to uh, have any kind of, of of engagement with this, it should be as consumers, not as regulators, I feel. I think it's one of the interesting things as well is that we've actually watched Hollywood start to police itself in the last few months. I mean, with Kevin Spacey getting removed from House of Cards and then Ridley Scott, who may have made some problematic scenes with Blade Runner, um, actually taking Spacey out of the film completely and recasting it. As, because at the end of the day, he, I think the feeling was, generally speaking, that Spacey would kill that film, his involvement within it, and so they made a commercial decision. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Tambor um, also being kicked out of, of, of various shows, and uh, he was recently in the Death of Stalin, which has been quite heavily promoted, and then suddenly has hit the DVD shelves without going to cinema release, basically because he's in it. Um, so, I mean, obviously there is, there is an impact, and distributors and producers are, are, are well aware of the, the risks that they have to take, as well as us as consumers. Um, we have a Netflix generation as well who can just download and stream everything we want anyway regardless and, and, and shame free if you don't want to be seen going in to see a Woody Allen film for because you've heard various stories about him and you want to take a side and make a moral issue you can still go and illegally download it and, and people are not going to know um, it's, it's about the various toxicity isn't it really that attaches to 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 problematic behaviour um, and and um, how much of an impact that has 
um, on the, the the brand of of whoever it is attached to, um, and in the past, it hasn't tended to have much of an impact on the brand. I think is which that, is a tacit acceptance yeah. of the behaviour. And, and as that changes now within within the system, as, as that has a commercial impact, I think we are going to see a change, and hopefully for the better. So in many respects, whilst for various reasons I kind of I'm not always completely easy about you know making public allegations about somebody until you know they've had the chance to go through the court process because I think that's really important in order to get restorative justice um I do think that you know it it, it is allowing people to actually be brave and actually stand up and say look these things happened and it needs to be addressed and like we can't work with these people um I want to anyone else in the room want to have a go thoughts oh okay uh it was just um i'm sorry it was just picking up on the point you made liz and i'm of the same opinion that kind of like i'm a little bit cautious about fantastic beasts now going forward um i think jk rowling has taken a really strong stance in the first set of films where she was very much like she wanted to give like the green light for every person involved she was very determined that they all be you know from the uk and the places be from the uk but for this one she's kind of like wiped her hands but it's clear that she can, but she's choosing in this case not to necessarily say anything. So with examples like, and it's just a, quite a general question, with examples like the Ridley Scott Spacey thing where he is making a commercial decision effectively, and I think he said it himself, to cut him out. And then there's also the, um, the Agatha Christie adaptation, and they it was meant to be out three months ago, but they cut Ed Westwick because of allegations. Whenever it's happening, because a lot of the examples have been kind of retrospective, we're like looking back on things that happened in the past, but when they're happening now, when they're happening live and current, do you think that directors, film companies have either an obligation or an opportunity to say, we might need to go back, reshoot, cut things, cut people from, and uh, where should people stand on that? Can I start? So um, just very quickly, J.K. Rowling actually did make a statement um, on Twitter about Johnny Depp. Um, which I personally was very, very disappointed in because um, she basically said that she's talked to Johnny and it was hard for everybody and she's happy to be in the film, for him to be in the film. I don't think I can tell you how I feel about that without potentially libeling Johnny Depp, so I won't. But suffice it to say that I found that very, very disappointing, particularly from an author whose who a, a large theme of her books was anti-bullying and about fairness and equality. I think that was really, really sad to see that response from her, and I really expected a lot better. Um, in terms of um, addressing things live while they're happening, my personal view would be yes. Um, I And those would be the kinds of companies and the kinds of initiatives that I would want to support, that I would take my money to as a consumer. Um, it also tells me that... Um, it, I think it tells us that culture is changing, that the society is changing. I think that if that if that's not happening, um, we run the risk of this only being a commercial decision. And obviously, these are companies, and they are they're going to think about their their bottom line. But I really hope that it doesn't stop at that because this isn't just about the money. If we want to just talk about money, we can talk about the gender pay gap within um, within these films, which, you know, you talk about the one um, that Spacey had to be written out of. It also came out that for the reshoots that needed to be done, Michelle Williams accepted a fee of $1,000, and Mark Wahlberg got paid a million. And they're represented by the same people, so <laughs> that, that's a problem. So, yes, I absolutely want to see um, these companies responding. I think it goes back to that feedback loop that I mentioned before, is these, these are cultural companies in a sense they're making the culture that we are consuming um they are influencing our culture but they also need to be influenced by us saying 
no, this is no longer an accurate reflection of what we want our world to be. This is, we don't want to watch stuff like this and we don't want to watch people who aren't able to comport themselves justly in their personal lives being lauded on screen, or at least I don't. I think um, I, I strongly suspect that one of the reasons that Johnny Depp has been allowed to, to remain in part um, is because we have a different attitude towards domestic abuse situations and sort of violence um, to sexual abuse. I think people are getting very, very um, involved in the sexual abuse allegations and the scandals associated with that. There's often bullying and things associated with it, but it's primarily seen as a sexual assault of some description. I think that there's still a prejudice against the other. And I, I mean, that that's something, again, that cinema does not help with whatsoever and probably a conversation we should have on a, on a follow-up. Yeah, um, I think, to, to be honest, um, unfortunately, I do think that the court of popular opinion has spoken on Johnny Depp and I think he's getting a pass um, for whatever has has or has not allegedly happened um and i think again the difference there is that it's it is the the nature of the allegations against him allow this to be seen as a personal uh issue as opposed to the allegations against the likes of weinstein and and uh from from the ones that have been um occurring within a work context um it's differently illegal um and it's a, but I, I know exactly what you're saying. I don't want this just to be a commercial decision, but I think if we are hoping for it to be a cultural decision, um, we will be disappointed. I think until this becomes commercially non-viable, that cult, and it ha we've seen it, the culture allowed that to continue for decades upon decades upon decades until it became culturally non or commercially non-viable, at which point, can we say the culture is shifting? Possibly, but certainly it's becoming more difficult for the bottom line to be sort of healthy while you're associated with people who have these um, very toxic allegations associated with them. I, if I could just very quickly on that as well, I think it, it is very much bound up in, in our wider patriarchal society yeah. and that do we think society is shifting? would certainly hope so, but mm. um, we need... It's really important, I think, that that, that works like this reflect um, reflect where people are shifting to. And I know you're absolutely right that at the minute it is a commercial change. Um, but I think that only that that perhaps the commercial change can be used then to push the cultural change further on. If more and more people are saying we're not going to, um, and we're not going to buy into these films, these filmmakers, we want to see more films made by women. We want to see more films that deal with something other than the male gaze. Um, then they will start to be made. We can use our cultural power yeah. to shift um, a commercial entity, which can then theoretically be made to reflect what we wanted to. That's the theory behind my cultural feedback. I, I, I mean, quite honestly, I've been saying this for a long time until we get parity in terms of representation of, of, of sort of female and male perspectives uh, in every stage of the process when we have, the, you know, the actors are better represented and uh, we've got more parity on, on writing and producing and directing. That's when we'll start to see a shift and that's not going to happen um, overnight. But this is kind of what I mean about the sort of the commercial side of it as well is that um, we've, we've, 
known for a long time that the narrative that Hollywood is selling, you know, women don't go to the cinema the same way as women don't consume genre fiction, women aren't blah bloody bloody blah is nonsense and it's demonstrably nonsense and we have the figures and the statistics to back it up but women continue to consume films that are created um, towards that narrative because that's the only option that we have. So it was not commercially non-viable until very, very recently. Sorry, I saw a hand going up there um, and I just wanted to, to stop talking and let other people talk. I think um, these issues of representation uh, stretch way beyond just women actually and um, black people queer people um, uh, the list goes on so on the issue of um, actually I'll give an example first there's a film made by Gaspar Noe called Irreversible yeah you've seen it right uh, yeah, never ever want to repeat that experience. Never ever right. want to. Incredible film, never watching but it again. But we, we okay. probably should do a, a show on it at some point. Yeah. As long as I don't have to watch it again. Mm. I feel like everybody in the audience knows something that I don't know. Don't yeah, do yeah. No, based on what you said earlier, you do not want to watch this. Okay. <laughs> you can cross that off the list. Yeah. I will do. Um, basically, it's a nine minute scene um, of a woman being raped in an underpass. Um, the camera doesn't cut away, you're subjected to the scene. Um, and after the film, the director talks about using, um, I think it's minus 20 hertz in the soundtrack to um, ignite that instinctual thing within all of us um, and kind of f makes you feel repulsed. But also talks about the fact that he um, wants these scenes to be represented, but because in reality they exist. And by, by bypassing them in our representations in cinema, does the, those an injustice and also going on from that if we aren't as um as kind of adults in a cinema willing or uh, kind of ready to to watch something that is quote unquote problematic and not feel like we need to be branded as as um a, a kind of follower of that filmmaker i think that's kind of sad too especially somebody who's who's making a living or working in the field of film theory or uh, film history. I think we're doing those stories a kind of injustice in a different way. Um, and, and um, yeah, basically, what do you think of that representation of things that are so repulsive and so disgusting? Um, and by us asserting a moral code, essentially, um, it applies to us in the West as as filmmakers in the West and as audiences in the West. But for, for example, um, Iranian film directors representing women as essentially cardboard cutouts of themselves, why does that not enter the conversation as well? And what kind of issues does that raise? In, in, in terms of this conversation, and I suppose uh, one of the okay. So the first thing you got to bear in mind is anytime we come film, we come from our own personal perspective. This is Northern Ireland. We are, I hate to admit it, a largely white society. So I, I, I got into a conversation with the other night. Actually, at another event, um, I wanted to get into the appropriation of black culture, and and you know, it actually, it's a really difficult conversation to have when you're here. Um, because we just don't have the ethnic diversity um, and voices coming out that we're, we're not exposed in the same way. So the reason we don't talk about Iranian culture necessarily is because either we don't receive it as consumers or we don't perceive it to be part of the conversation that we wish to have. Now, obviously, everything we do, we, we curate what we, we look at, what, what we kind of 
um, what we're kind of discussing. So those things are, are, are valid. Um, and how you judge another... I mean, this is actually a very good point. It's like whenever we're talking about some of the things that have been screened in the past and actually gone back and how we reevaluate those, is that us looking at things through 21st century eyes on the customs and the morals of the past and do we have the right then to say, no, that's right or no, that's wrong? Or actually... I, I think we do. I do think we do. Um, well, I, I, I do have trouble uh, feeling in any way qualified to speak to the experience of Iranian women. Um, it's I, that feels as though it would be um, that uh, sort of West Western centric, and um, I don't feel like I have the authority to speak on behalf of of Iranian women on, in terms of their representation. I do think it's a really important conversation to be having, but the extent to which my um, perspective as a white Western heterosexual woman can be brought to bear on the representation of um, LGBT, um, non-white, um, non-European. It's it's that's that that's something that I think were I a member of of any of those groups, I would take issue with me purporting to speak with their voice. I think race and sexual assault is actually very important to talk about, particularly in film. And I can bring it back to the hashtag MeToo campaign, for example, which has um, been popularised by white Hollywood. is not a white Hollywood thing. It is not unique to Hollywood. It is made by a person of colour. It's a black woman called Tarana Burke who made it 10 years ago to allow for people of colour to have representation because people of colour are less likely to go and report sexual assault and um, I think while it's great, and she says herself, it's fantastic that there has been people coming forward and, and things like that, but a lot of sexual assault and uh, th this discussion is actually not based around what it was designed for. And you're finding, th like, from, and I obviously, you, you probably would know better than I am, I'm not a film scholar, but the one black person I know who has come forward is Terry Crews, um, which is important as a, you know, as a two, yeah, yeah no. jump. Sorry, I, I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, finish. absolutely. Um, no. I was okay. just going to say that you're absolutely right. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about Lupita Nyong'o. Yeah. Oh, who, yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, yes, obviously. The, um, the allegations that she's made against Harvey Weinstein have gotten nowhere near as much oxygen yes. as the other ones. And you're absolutely, absolutely right. There is right. absolutely a racial dimension to this. Um, they've got, you know, and that we need to be aware of. And I thank you for mentoring, mentioning Tarana Burke. I was absolutely remiss in not doing that because you're absolutely right. Um, that, um, that that needs to be um, a focus of what we're talking about as well, that there, there is not just the gender issue, but there's, there's the intersectionality issue Absolutely. here as well. Because that, that is something that's actually really annoying me at the minute and sort of like, because it, while it's really important and she says like she is very happy that people are like using solidarity and are like finding comfort in it and people are like rallying together, like ultimately becoming a hashtag is taken away from like its true purpose. And it is like, it, it just kind of like... <laughs> Yeah. But it is appropriation then. Well, it's absolutely. Uh, me, that's exactly yeah. what I was trying to say. And so just to sort of run about, because I know what you're trying to say as well. And I think it can, I, I, I think it I, transfers in. But I know, like, I, I, I understand I, your point as well. But No, no, I think that's absolutely valid. And actually, it's a conversation. I mean, we, look, we want to carry on this conversation on, on social media and stuff as well. So I'd encourage you to kind of interact with us. Um, we'll try and share some stuff. Um, and, and we actually, I, I would like to come back to this conversation as well, because I think it's a very important thing. Also, I mean, as you've kind of observed, this has not just been about the, the, actually the media industry at all. Um, I mean, 
uh, that many of my friends have now picked up on this hashtag and used it for their own experiences. It, it's an endemic uh, global problem across everything. So there's a, there's a kind of much bigger picture that's come out of everything. I think part of the problem is that the media is the, the industry that has been prepared to look at it. There are so many industries where we know this is an issue and they are just shutting down and oh. they refuse to even acknowledge that there's a problem. It's also about- that they can get their, their voices out there yeah. and that they're visible and they're white and they're powerful and they're wealthy. So they have... Um, less risk in speaking out than people like um, domestic workers, cleaners for whom the hashtag was started. Um, And that's why I I think, and I haven't read in depth about it, but the Time's Up um, response I think is really important because it was actually putting money behind um, this issue and giving it not just um, to to wealthy actresses, um, but to people who don't have the same kind of resources. And then it's important that that response doesn't get lost. You had a question? Yes. I don't want to miss you out because you were very vocal at having a question. (laughs) Wait, wait for the mic, wait for the mic. Um, thank you. First of all, I just wanted to say, if anyone doesn't know, J.K. Rowling is a transphobe and just a mess, so don't listen to anything she says. I know everyone loves Harry Potter, but she's a mess. She's transphobe? Yeah, she liked some tweet that was like implying that trans women were just men in dresses. Oh, man. And yeah, I mean, you have a public account. You know everyone can see your likes, but yet you don't that, care. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a generational feminist thing, and it's yeah, very yeah. problematic. Oh, okay. that, that's another R in Harry Potter. That's not. I have, to, I have to go home. I've got children. Not now. Not now. Not <laughs> okay, in the future. Kinda, sorry, I just, I know you're short of time. Just tying together all the sort of things. Like, I get from a commercial perspective, I obviously think we shouldn't fund those abusers but just when you were saying about including rape scenes and things like that I think it's very important that films themselves do include these kind of topics more and I think the problem obviously that rape scene is portrayed as horrifying but the problem is with some films that not even it doesn't matter whether or not Alan is in real life an abuser or whatever he's alleged to have done but his films portray things like that and the John Hughes films portray really bad situations in a comical light or in a romantic light like Blade Runner. And that's kind of the problem. As long as those things are presented in film and given the right tone, but it's when they're presented as funny or not serious that that or, needs to be addressed as well. Or as something for the that, that sort of sets um, men emoting. Do you know? The, yeah. the, the terrible thing happens to the women so that the man can have an emotional narrative. Oh, that. Um, so yeah. much that. The fridging, oh. the fridging narrative. It's a version of the fridging narrative. And it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was interesting as well mentioning the Holocaust Memorial because I was not to be that person that has to like make a parallel to everything you always make a parallel to Hitler at some point along the line um, but do we I have think, to go there? Yeah. <laughs> no, I obviously don't keep watching films and funding films that you know are abusers right but with the films that already been made I don't really see I can understand why you don't want to watch Alan's films or Polanski's but at the same time it's been made and done you don't have to give them money to watch it and I think when you tie the art and the artist together and now that you know all the stuff about the artist, it means you can reevaluate the art in a different way. Like, I mean, Riefenstahl and Olympia, nobody's watching that thinking, gosh, wasn't the National Socialist regime amazing? Like, look at these strong German athletes. You look at it from the perspective of, you know what her intention was and you know her stance. So it makes you look at the film in a new way. So I think with, if you know about John Hughes, like problematic things and Alan's problematic things, like you can look at it from a different perspective and you shouldn't take that away because it's kind of fun not fun but like if you're an intellectual and you're studying like you have to kind of it gives you more depth into the film so I think it's a bit it takes like you're depriving yourself of something if you won't watch it and criticise it 
I don't know. I'll, I'll give you a chance to wrap this one up yourselves, and then I'll. There <laughs> was um, there was an interesting article. Um, I believe it was on the the Atlantic that I just saw, and I haven't had a chance to read all of it. But it was um, addressing the American film The Birth of a Nation. If anyone's familiar, the original. Which, yeah. Mm. Um, so the fact that you're ooing tells me that you know what I'm talking about. The fact that it was basically made um, it's KKK propaganda. Yeah, it's KKK yeah. propaganda exactly. Um, and, and so you have there to was teach always it as part of film theory, because right? It's, yeah, because it's, it's made by one of America's greatest filmmakers, right. allegedly. So allegedly, <laughs> I, I'm so. not Keenan Griffith. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that for me is a really good example of that. But I also don't feel that I personally am in a position to comment on that because I'm not a person of color, and so I I am not impacted by that film in the same way. Um, and I'm so I'm not saying that I have no legitimate opinions about that or any other film that I'm not impacted by, but I think that when we're evaluating art versus the artist and the, and the value of the art um, for history's sake or for art's sake versus what it's saying, the people who are impacted by that are the voices that we also need to really include in that conversation. So if I'm going to have a conversation about um, the birth of a nation, I'm not going to have that conversation. I don't think I should be the dominant voice in the room. Um, and like, likewise, if we're having a conversation as we are um, about um, sexual assault in film or in, in filmmaking, I think it's really important that there are women here, you know, and not to minimize you at all, Robert. But um, I, th I think that th those voices need to be um, need need to be centered because the people who are impacted by that that how am I saying this? There's a certain amount of privilege that goes into consuming these things when you're not the one. Yeah whose issues or whose identity is being targeted by it. I can watch History of a Nation and be like, oh, that's really crappy. It was a good piece of filmmaking, but oh my God, mm. that was KKK propaganda. But do I really have the right to say that other people should watch that because I'm not a person of color? I don't know. I guess for me, I think, I think that that has to be considered in that issue. Um, I don't think I can top that. <laughs> um, I think that's, that's uh, basically, yeah, um, more... I, I think that's really well put. Sorry, that's that's a really weedy way to end it. Yeah, I, I, what she said. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go what they said. <laughs> Although I, 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 do, I do agree. Um, I mean, I think for me, from a film historian's perspective, I mean, I've already alluded to the fact that I get quite annoyed whenever people start to, let's use the expression, whitewash, they start to edit history and remove things that actually were part of the cultural zeitgeist at the time. And you pick up on these when you start looking through other um, sort of the media, you know, where you're looking at news reports, you're picking up newspapers and magazines when those figures are not there anymore when their films that were, were kind of topping the bills are, are taken away from you that is a problem and you have to look at it in its cultural context, but it doesn't mean we don't constantly reevaluate what happened in the past and I think that's what we do do and it's how we use that information, it's how we then reappraise someone that is what makes the difference and we're going to keep on doing this and, and the reality is is that regardless of how we feel about a filmmaker or an actor or whatever else, we're still going to watch their films, we're still going to look at their work some of us will not choose not to watch some of those things and some of us will choose to look at them with new eyes and, and, and find them very distasteful and I am constantly reevaluating stuff that I loved 20 years ago and now I sit there going, oh my gosh I laughed at this, I'm a bad person um, I, just not the Princess Bride. Please don't take that away from me. Um, don't take the Princess Bride away from me, please. I, I feel like I'm taking it away from myself, <laughs> though, because I'm the one who's sitting here saying I can't watch it without realizing that he's basically abusing her. It, 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 look, it's, I mean, it's, it's true. Um, it, it but he is. It happens on a regular basis. You'll watch something and suddenly, once you start having these conversations, at least, and you have these, 
this kind of awareness is you will start to watch things and reevaluate whether or not that's appropriate. Now, we, you guys have been fantastic, uh, and thank you very much for joining us today. Um, if you're interested in our stuff, uh, we are online. We have a podcast. Uh, we have our Facebook and Twitter at Cinepunked, uh, and please do engage with us there. Kind of let this carry on this conversation, and if you're interested, we'll try and do another one of these stories. And yes, the cultural appropriation is definitely something... Ladies, gentlemen, that we definitely should do. Um, and I'm, he has legitimately been talking about this for quite some time. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's it, it's something that's on our mind. It's just about finding the right format for us to do that in, so we can have that conversation, and also the right guests, which is really really difficult in Northern Ireland um, and and with our funding problems <laughs> in this country. Um, anyway, that's a, a whole other thanks. So thanks very much to the Beanbag as well for hosting us and to the Belfast Film Festival. I want to thank Liz Nelson for participating today. Um, thanks for having me. Dr. Rachel Kelly for being a constant foil. <laughs> um, I'm Robert J. Simpson, and uh, the, the man who's been wandering around the room all day, this is, uh, this is our quiet soul. This is Ben Simpson. He is um, not only my brother, he's also our producer, so he makes us sound better when we come to doing podcasts. So thanks, Ben, for coming out again. So, yes, yeah, so thank you very much, and hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, um, drop us some feedback. If you haven't enjoyed it, drop us some feedback, because that's the way people learn, and it stops our bad behaviour from continuing. Um, thank you very much, folks. <laughs>